0: And attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed Let's pray. Father God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, I pray that you would take center stage this morning as the word of God is preached. I pray for my friends listening this morning, Lord, that they would have ears to hear the word. That they would receive the word with eagerness and gladness like the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17. And I pray that you would help us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. I pray that our lives would be centered on the word of God for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All of us uh, long to have our lives count. All of us long to have an impact on our world somehow, for our lives not to be wasted. I think of the, the motto we use at Harbin's Church. Uh, We are a church where the generations converge to enjoy God and change the world. We want to make a difference. And and typically when we think of the type of people who who are movers and shakers in this world, people who make waves, people who really have an impact, who do we think of? What kinds of people do usually come across our minds? We think of kings. We think of presidents. World leaders, people of great means, impressive people, people of of great eloquence and influence and prestige, we tend to think that, that these elite people are the ones who are the real movers and shakers, the ones who are really making a difference and shaping the course of the world. Yet in Acts 17, we see some men here that are having a tremendous impact on the world, an impact that is greater than kings or rulers or others that... Men may deem significant. We see people who are not wasting their lives, but we see people who are making a difference for time and for eternity. And if you want your life to count, if you, if you really want to make a difference, if you really want to have an impact and shake the world, forget about running for president. Forget about aspiring to be a millionaire. Not that those things. Not not, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with being a world leader. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with having great wealth. But it's possible to be all those types of things and totally waste your life. And there are are greater works and deeds that God wants you to participate in. And you may miss out on those if you set your sights too low. The President of the, the, the United States, or Bill Gates, or Oprah Winfrey may have a little bit of impact in the world, but if you really want to be where the action is at, if you really want to turn the world upside down, you do better to turn your eyes away from those that the world esteems and rather turn your eyes and your attention to the the book of Acts and to men like Paul, to men like Silas, and other courageous, godly men and women who were who are the first believers of the church of Jesus Christ in the church's earliest, most formative years. We are continuing our series now in the book of Acts. And and the first portion of this book, the, the writer Luke... Uh, focuses most of his attention on the ministry of the Apostle Peter, who was the forefront of the leaders of the early church and was used by God in a great way to facilitate the church's expansion. But by the time you get midway into the book of Acts, Luke begins to shift his focus, his character focus. He begins to, to, to turn his focus onto Paul, who would build upon Peter's foundational work. Paul, uh, more so than even Peter, has a more of a of a cross cultural missions focus. the The early church was initially a Jewish church, but God did not intend for Christianity to be a, merely a Jewish religion. Jesus Christ gives us His intentions for the church and, and and for His disciples in Acts chapter one, verse eight, in the very beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus gives us His intentions for the church. Listen to what Jesus says. He says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And Paul really has a special interest, a special calling in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's still interested in the Jewish mission, he's still interested in spreading the gospel amongst his Jewish brethren. But Paul has also a special interest in even going beyond that into the Gentile regions as well, which is what we've been reading about these past few chapters in Acts. Paul's missionary endeavors as he begins to penetrate non-Jewish, Gentile-dominated regions with the message of Christ. And everywhere that Paul goes, everywhere that Paul goes, things are being shaken up. Things are, are, are in an uproar. Everywhere he goes, this, the, the, the pot is being stirred And Paul and his traveling companion Silas, they have a reputation now. What kind of reputation do they have? We're told in our scripture today, look at verse 6 in Acts chapter 17. You'll see the reputation that they have. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Paul had a reputation For being a man that was turning the world upside down. They had heard about Paul. And the people in Acts 17 are saying, you've heard of these guys. You've heard about them. They've been in other towns. they're, They're turning the world upside down. And guess what? These guys now are here in our community doing the same thing. You see, Paul's reputation preceded him. And what we see happen in Acts 17 in Thessalonica with the mobs and the riots and the uproar, this was not just an isolated incident. This was not just an anomaly. Practically everywhere he went, there was a stir. Everywhere he went, there was an uproar. In Acts chapter 14, we uh, looked at a few weeks ago, Paul is in uh, Lystra and he ends up being attacked by a mob and he is stoned and he's left for dead. Uh, why, and, and we saw in last week's sermon, remember St- Pastor Steve was preaching on this, Paul and Silas were in Philippi, they were preaching the gospel, and and they end up being accused of causing a disturbance in the city, they are beaten, and they are thrown in jail, and, this, and we're going to see this pattern continue as we go throughout the book of Acts. Everywhere Paul goes, he seems to be a, just a magnet for controversy and trouble, so Everywhere he's going, he's making waves. And it wasn't just that people were being thrown into an uproar. Uh, it wasn't that people were just... It wasn't that everyone was just always shouting or getting upset. But as Paul travels throughout the Roman world, he not only is leaving behind a string of angry and outraged people, but there's also a string of converts. Changed lives. New disciples. New Churches. And despite opposition in nearly every place he went, Paul, Paul's gospel message is unstoppable. The church continues to grow, souls are continued to be snatched from the fires of hell, and God continues to glorify himself by saving people of all races, Jews and Gentiles, and incorporating them into the family of God. When the Jews at Thessalonica said that Paul was turning the world upside down, it was no exaggeration. What, what was it about Paul? What was it about his ministry? What was it about his life that was lived out in such a way that he was charged with turning the world upside down? And what can we learn from him? And, and, and how can you make your life count? How can you not waste your life... If you really want to make a difference in the world, then forget about pursuing wealth, forget about pursuing power, forget about pursuing influence. You'll be better off pursuing the type of lifestyle that we see Paul leading in Acts 17. And as we look at Acts 17, there are four things that that I want us to to focus on, And, and we are not going to be able to do all four this morning. I'm going to I realized that as I was, I, was, I was prepping this sermon. I'm just not going to even try to cram it all in because it would be like you drinking water through a fire hose and I'm going to have mercy on you and I'm only going to do two this morning and then we'll look at two more next week. But here are the four things that I want us to, uh, to focus on. Four ingredients that when you combine them into your life, into your ministry, you'll be on your way to really making your life count big time. You may even find yourself one day being accused of turning the world upside down. Let's let, let me look at these four things. This is not an exhaustive list, but but these four things are, are simply things that stand out in our in our text today. The things that I see: number one, being bold; number two, being word centered; number three, preaching the suffering and risen Christ; and number four. Proclaiming Jesus as King. Being bold, being word-centered, preaching the suffering and risen Christ, and proclaiming Jesus as King. We'll take the first two uh, today, and then next week we'll take a closer look at the final two. The first one, being bold. Being bold. Having courage. You ever struggle with boldness? in preaching the gospel? I mean, I, I, you don't need to do a show of hands or anything like that, but this, this is a question you may want to think about. Do you struggle with boldness in preaching the gospel? You know, if Paul was anything, he was bold. If Paul was anything, he was courageous. Virtually everywhere that, that Paul has, has been going, there has been trouble, there has been a stir, there has been an uproar, and often he, was, he found himself in situations where his very life was on the line his life was in danger. As I mentioned in Lystra, he was stoned and left for dead. Last week's chapter, Paul and Silas were in Philippi. They were beaten. They were thrown into prison. And this, the beating that they took wasn't just you know, a, a few body shots to the, to the stomach or to the face. They were severely beaten with these hard wooden rods over and over and over again. Steve last week was pretty graphic when he was describing the beatings and the sufferings. I'm not going to get into all that today... But they were beaten to a pulp. And they were put in stocks in jail. And what do Paul and Silas do after they're released? What's their next step? What do they do after that? What would you do after you had been through something like that? I'd probably take a vacation. I'd probably do a little bit of R&R. Well, I, I put in my time and I'm, I'm done. I'm going go to Disneyland for a while and relax. That's not what Paul And Silas do. In Acts 17, right after this, they go to Thessalonica and preach Jesus. After what they had just experienced in Philippi, that takes boldness for them to do that. And even Paul himself admits that this is a bold thing to do. He says as much in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 1 Thessalonians was a a letter that Paul wrote to the, the Christians in Thessalonica... Okay, that, that's the city that Acts 17, the first half of Acts 17 is taking place in. And Paul writes 1 Thessalonians after this story here in Acts 17. And he's writing 1 Thessalonians and in some of the book he's reflecting back on his experience in Thessalonica. And listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 starting at verse 1. And you can actually turn there if you want. I'll, I'll, I'll be there for a little bit. But uh, it 's First Thessalonians chapter two, verse one. Paul says, "For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul is essentially saying that after the beating. And the suffering and the the shameful mistreatment that he and Silas received in Philippi, it took some boldness to keep going and to continue to put their lives on the line. Paul admits that. He says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And what was that conflict? Well, we see at least a portion of that conflict in our text today in Acts chapter 17, don't we? Some of the Jews stir up a mob against them and they are eventually driven out of the city. And, but, but it's interesting, what, what, do, what do they do after they are driven out of Thessalonica? Acts 17, verse 10 says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and, and, and then they arrived and they went into the Jewish synagogue, and they started again preaching the gospel. They just follow the same pattern over and over and over again. They go to a city, they preach, they're persecuted, they're attacked, they're driven out. And then they just go to the next city. And they preach, and they are persecuted, and they are attacked, and they are driven out. And then what do they do after that? They go to another city. And the same thing happens. This pattern continues throughout the book of Acts. Now, you would think that Paul might eventually sit down with Silas, especially after what what they went through in Philippi. You would think that they would sit down and have a little staff meeting. And they'd say, you know what? Maybe we ought to revisit our strategy here. Maybe we ought to do things a little bit different. Maybe we need to be a little more seeker-sensitive in our preaching. Maybe we shouldn't talk about sin that much. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be so upfront about Jesus being the only way and, being, and, and, and having this offensive message that's always getting us into trouble. No, that, that's not what they do. Paul doesn't change his tactic. He doesn't change or water down his message. He rather boldly proclaims the message in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition. You will never be accused of turning the world upside down if you lack boldness, if you lack courage. But where did Paul get that type of boldness? Where does that type of courage come from? I think the the book of Acts actually answers this question, at least in part, up front. In the very beginning, remember what Jesus said to his disciples. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we see in Acts 1, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is linking the power of the Holy Spirit with the ability of the disciples to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And I think as you read through Acts, it becomes quite clear that one of the ways the Spirit empowers Christians to be witnesses is through giving them boldness, a supernatural boldness. Now, that word boldness comes up a number of times in the book of Acts. Uh, the, 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 the Greek word uh, parasia that, that, that comes up several times in in Acts. And this is an important word in Acts. It depicts a Spirit-inspired Courage and confidence to speak the word in spite of any danger, in spite of any threat. You have one of the earliest occurrences of that word, that Greek word paresia, boldness, in the Book of Acts, chapter four, thirty-one. It says in verse thirty-one of chapter four, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness so here in acts 4:31 you have the filling of the holy spirit and an increase of boldness from the spirit in response to the prayers of the people so if you want courage if you if you if you are struggling with boldness in preaching the gospel if that if that scares you if that intimidates you If you want to have the kind of boldness Paul had in preaching the gospel, you've got to realize that it is a spirit thing. You can't drum up this type of boldness and courage yourself. You've got to pray, you've got to be filled with the spirit, and then you will speak the word of God with boldness. I think Paul was a man who was spirit-filled. And by the way, Paul writes later on in the New Testament that you cannot walk in the spirit and walk in the flesh at the same time. You can't walk in the Spirit and walk in sin at the same time. Which means that if you're constantly giving yourself over to sinful desires, you are not being filled with the Spirit. And if you're not being filled with the Spirit, you will not receive the kind of boldness that you need to preach the gospel. So, really, even though I'm starting with boldness, the prerequisite really to all of this is simply living for Jesus and killing sin in your life, you won't be someone who is turning the world upside down and making a difference in the world if sin is dominating your life. I think there's some other reasons that gave Paul boldness. Going back to uh, to First Thessalonians chapter two again, uh, Paul sheds some further light on his boldness to preach the gospel. First Thessalonians two verses two through four. Listen to what Paul says again about his boldness. He has a boldness because he's a tough guy, and he can take a few knocks. Okay, that's not why Paul has boldness. He doesn't say he has boldness because of anything special about himself. Paul says, "We had." look at it, 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, we had boldness in our God. That's the key. He knew that God was with him. He knew that God had called him to do this. God was on his side. And if God be before us, who can be against us? How can, any, how, can we, how can he be anything but bold if he fully realizes that God is right there with him in the midst of his gospel preaching? If you're walking down the street in a dangerous neighborhood, I grew up in Washington, D.C. There are lots of dangerous neighborhoods there. And there were times when I was younger, I'd walk down the street and I'd see somebody kind of far off in the distance, but they they looked menacing, kind of dangerous or whatever. And I was by myself and I'd start to get a little nervous. And I wouldn't really go that way towards that person. I'd maybe go on the other side of the street or I'd take a side street or whatever. I wouldn't keep going down that that path. Imagine you were going down a path and you see a guy way down there and he's kind of menacing. He's got a baseball bat and he's walking right towards you. You wouldn't feel too bold if you were by yourself. But what if you were walking down the same street in the same situation, and right next to you was a six foot five police officer with a loaded gun? All of a sudden, you'd have some boldness, wouldn't you? You'd walk down the street, you'd be just fine. But do you have boldness in yourself? No. That has nothing to do with you. You have boldness in the police officer, you have boldness. Because of the police officer, because of the person that is walking down this road with you. You're going to walk down that street with confidence and with boldness and it has everything to do with that person who is with you and the power and the authority of that individual that is with you. Which is exactly why Jesus in giving us the Great Commission in Matthew 28 does more than give us marching orders. He also reminds us of his authority and his presence with us. Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, in other words, go therefore and make disciples. That therefore is linked to the authority that Jesus has. All authority has been given to me. For that reason, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. Authority and presence. Authority and presence. Jesus says, go and spread the gospel And as you go forth and walk down this road, I am going to be with you. And I think Paul had a keen awareness of the authority and the presence of Jesus in his life. And that gave him boldness. Boldness. And when Jesus says, I am with you to the end of the age, he's not just talking to those disciples that were standing there with the resurrected Lord. He's talking to you. As well. He will be with you as you go forth and preach the gospel. Think about Moses. Remember Moses? God had called Moses to do something that required great boldness. He was to go and to march into Egypt, into the land where there was a death sentence on his head. And he was to speak to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and demand that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, release the Israelites from slavery. And what does Moses do? Does Moses say, sure thing, God, when do we leave? I'm ready. Is that what Moses does? No, that's not Moses' initial response. Moses' initial response is the exact opposite of boldness. It is complete and utter fear. And he comes up with all of these excuses as to why he shouldn't be the man to do this thing. And and Moses says to God, who am I, God, that I should do this sort of thing? And how does God respond? Moses says, who am I? How does God respond? Does God say, well, Moses, you were this, and you were that, and you were that. And that's why you should go. Or does God respond and say, toughen up, Moses, and quit being a wimp? Is that how God responds to Moses? No, that's not what God says. Moses says, who am I to do this thing? And God's response is interesting. He says, I will be with you. Almost seems to be in, not, he's not answering Moses' question directly. He's sidestepping Moses' question about who he is, almost as if he is not the issue. Moses says, who am I? God says, I will be with you. He responds to Moses' fear with assurance of his presence. And that's what God always does. He takes the focus off of us, off of our abilities, our lack thereof, off of our fears, and he draws his attention to himself because it's never about us and what we can do. It's always about him and what he is doing. So if you struggle with boldness in preaching the gospel, remember the presence of, of Christ. Now I think of something else in regards to Paul's boldness. <clears throat> in first First Thessalonians chapter two, uh, again Paul says, I'll read it again, as we know we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. "...but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak..." "...and this is important, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts." So what is the engine that is driving Paul's boldness to declare the gospel in the midst of much conflict? He tells us to please God. Paul is not interested in pleasing men... And when you become more concerned about what God thinks, as opposed to what man thinks, you begin to walk in boldness. If you are afraid to preach the gospel because of what others think of you, you will never be accused of turning the world upside down. If the more, if the more you become interested in pleasing God, the less, and the less you worry about what others think, the more bold you become. And that empowers you to do God's will, as you're concerned with pleasing God. Him. And I think finally, also, what fueled Paul's boldness was a holy compassion for lost people. Paul was so convinced of the reality of hell and God's wrath and judgment that it overrode any concern for himself. Paul writes in Romans 9, beginning of Romans 9, listen to what he says. Listen to Paul pour out his heart here. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What's Paul talking? Paul's talking about his Jewish brothers, his Jewish brethren. And he's in deep anguish and sorrow over them. Paul knows that this is not a game. He knows that heaven is real. He knows that heaven that hell is imminent for all who are outside of Christ. And what's more, Paul has has a deep love and compassion for his fellow Jews who are on their way to hell. And Paul in Romans 9 is in such anguish and concern that he says that if it were possible for him to go to hell instead of his brothers, he might do that. He might make that sacrifice. He loves and cares about them so much. Now, Paul knows that's not theologically correct. He's not making a theological statement here. He's not teaching that Paul can atone for the sins of lost people. It's just that Paul is so brokenhearted. He is so anguished over the condition of his fellow Jews. Paul was probably weeping as he was writing this. He fully believes that people are doomed forever in hell without Jesus Christ. Now, that kind of firm conviction in the realities of heaven and hell give boldness. Paul was probably thinking, you know, who cares if I get beat up if I go to this city? Who cares if I get thrown in prison if I can reach one more person with the gospel? It's worth it. This scar here was worth it. This scar here was worth it. If one more person will be saved, is worth it. And so I wonder if we if we lack boldness in preaching the gospel, if we lack interest in preaching the gospel, I wonder if we really believe that these people around us are going to hell without Christ. Do we really believe it? Paul believed it, and the reality of God's wrath on sinners, I think, overrode any fear he may have struggled with, and instead provoked in him a sense of great boldness and urgency to preach the gospel. And I think also Paul had an eternal perspective. Paul in Philippians writes this. I love this. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To die is gain. And Paul knows that the worst thing anybody can do to him is kill him. That's all. That is all. And if you're a Christian, that's no big deal at all. And if he is killed, Paul sees this as gain because he knows he will immediately be ushered into the presence of Christ with joy and pleasures forevermore. When you see death as gain, you become the kind of person that can turn the world upside down as God uses you. Our attitude should be like that cited by the author of the book of Hebrews... ...who says in Hebrews 13, 6... ...so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? When you realize that the Lord is your helper... ...that man cannot do anything to you apart from God's sovereign plan and purpose... ...that results in boldness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4... (laughs) ...this is another one I love... ...2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18... Paul's been through so much. And listen to his, his uh, assessment of everything he's been through, all the pain and suffering. <clears throat> he says, "...for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal." I always get a kick out of this verse Paul says this light and momentary affliction this light affliction are you kidding me Paul light affliction I mean have you gotten hit with stones too many times in the head that you forget what you've been through Light affliction, you were stoned and left for dead. You were beaten to a pulp. You were hounded by mobs from city to city. You've been in jail multiple times. You're always looking over your shoulder because there are people who want to kill you on a regular basis. Light affliction, Paul, you call that light? How can Paul call that light? Is he a masochist? Is he a super tough guy? No. This doesn't have anything to do with toughness. It has everything to do with vision. There is something that is coming for Paul that is so amazing, so incredible, so wonderful that compared to the sufferings that he is going through, those sufferings seem minuscule. Can you imagine how amazing heaven is going to be? That it is so wonderful that it makes beatings and lashings and persecutions look like it's light? Looks like like it's no big deal? I mean, oh, how we need to pray that God gives us a greater sense of what is to come in the next age. Because as God increases our eternal vision, I believe it will release a greater boldness in us. And if Paul thought that beatings and tortures were light, surely we will be able to handle someone making fun of us because we share our faith with them. Surely we will be able to handle someone being offended by us. Because we share the gospel with them. Surely we will be able to handle losing our job for the sake of the gospel. I pray that the Lord will give me and give you increased boldness by increasing our eternal perspective. That's the first ingredient, boldness. The first ingredient to being the kind of person who turns the world upside down. The second one is being word-centered being word centered. Now what do I mean by being word centered? I mean that our lives and our ministries have to be centered on the word of God. Paul's life was totally centered on the word of God. <clears throat> it was totally centered on the Bible. Now you say, "Well, Paul didn't didn't have <clears throat> the whole Bible." Paul was actually living <laughs> the Bible story. Paul was one of the characters in the Bible. He didn't have the Bible. He was in the process of writing the Bible. But actually, most of the Bible had already been written. I'm talking about the Old Testament. That was Paul's Bible. And Paul's ministry was totally centered on the Bible, on the Word of God. Paul was not interested in what philosophers and peddlers of human wisdom had to say. And believe me, there were many of them running around then, and there are many of them running around today. Paul was interested in what God said and what God had revealed through Scripture and through Christ. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Is God Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That was the core of everything that Paul had to say. He preached Christ crucified. And this is exactly what we see him doing in Thessalonica. He doesn't go in and get together some kind of focus group to find out the best way to gather a crowd, the best way to build a church. No, instead we are told in Acts 17, verse 2, he goes to Thessalonica, he goes to the synagogue, and then it says in verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer And to rise from the dead. In other words, Paul goes into the synagogue and and he tells them, tells them, guys, don't take my word for it. Look at what the Bible says about these things. Look at what the Word of God says about these things. Now that's amazing. Here is Paul, perhaps the greatest apostle of all time. He ended up writing most of the New Testament. He has seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. He has had amazing amazing visions and revelations from God. And yet, at the end of the day, Paul doesn't appeal to any of those things. At the end of the day, he doesn't doesn't tell them, You know what? Do you know who I am? I'm Paul, man. Just listen to what I'm saying. Just believe what I'm saying. No, No, Paul doesn't do any of those things. Instead, Paul appeals to the Scriptures. He goes back to the Bible and he says, listen, this is what God said. Don't just take my word for it. Look at what the Bible says. This is to be our ultimate authority. Test what I say in light of Scripture. Or you look down a few verses later in Acts 17. There's another amazing statement about the priority of the Scriptures. In verse 10, after being driven out of Thessalonica by the Jews, Paul goes to Berea. He goes to the synagogue. And of course, he's going to be teaching them the same thing he taught in Thessalonica. And look what Luke writes about the Bereans in um, actually it's verse in verse eleven. It says, "Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so." Now that's absolutely fascinating you might think that Luke would rebuke the Bereans for just not automatically believing the word of Paul, who is an apostle sent by God. Luke doesn't, Luke, but Luke doesn't do that. Luke does not say, now these Jews were just a bunch of doubting sinners because they didn't take Paul at his word and they had the audacity to double check what he was saying with what the Bible says. No, Luke doesn't condemn them. Actually, Luke commends them and not just for receiving Paul's word with eagerness but he commends them for examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so and folks you got a lot of preachers and teachers running around today speaking eloquently with lots of authority it seems on spiritual matters and and a lot of them get nervous or even offended when you just don't accept what they say from the pulpit and 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 and, and And instead, you examine what they say in light of the Bible. They feel threatened by that. But they shouldn't feel threatened by that. They should join Luke and commend that kind of activity. If the Bereans are commended and are called noble for examining what the Apostle Paul says in light of Scripture, then you should be commended for examining what insignificant Demer Webb says... ...in light of Scripture. Take what I say and test it in light of the Bible. Why? Because man shall not live by bread alone, the Bible says... ...but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible is to be your life. You think bread is life? The Scripture says the Word of God is your life. Just like you need bread to live, you need the Bible to really live. We need to be a Bible-centered, word-centered people if we're going to be a people who will make a difference in our world and perhaps even be accused of turning the world upside down. Because the Bible is the only book that contains everything you need to know about life, God, salvation, eternity. I was at Discover Mills Mall yesterday. I was at Books a Million. And man, there's like a million books there. (laughs) Give it the right name. And there's a lot of books there on spirituality and religion and philosophy and and all that, and some a lot of these books contain no truth whatsoever. Some of them may contain bits and pieces of the truth, partial truth, whatever. Some of these books are helpful, most are not, but the Bible stands above and beyond all those other tomes, far and away above those other books, because this is the only book that comes directly from God. And if what you have to say is not shaped by guided by, filtered by, driven by what this book says, then you have nothing to say that is more valuable than what the world has to say. And you won't be of any lasting help to anyone. Now, <clears throat> in regards to the supremacy of the Bible in our lives, and in our preaching, and our witnessing, I've been asked, one of the questions I, that I get asked often is, well, what do you say to people who don't believe in the Bible? I mean, how do you respond to those people I mean, Paul went to the Jews. They already believed in the Old Testament. That's easy. They already believed in the Old Testament. How can my ministry be word-centered if the people that I'm interacting with don't even accept the Bible as an authority? What am I supposed to do? My response is, preach the Bible to them. Preach the Bible to them. What else have you got to say that's more important than what the Bible says? Nothing. Now, some people will say, well, what I'm going to do first is I'm not going to preach the Bible, but I'm going to find some common ground with unbelievers. I'm going to to make use of some other things outside the Bible to build bridges with lost people. So then you have churches that will play a Van Halen song on Sunday morning to attract crowds. You have preachers that will use curse words from the pulpit to try to connect with unbelievers. You have churches that avoid talk of sin and repentance and instead talk about positive positive thinking, and they give sermons like, okay, this morning we're going to talk about five tips on how to be successful in your business. And the scripture is never exposited, the scripture is never explained. The Scripture is never really taught, and then they try to baptize the sermon with one or two Bible verses that are probably taken out of context, and nothing has been said about the glory of God, the beauty of Christ, the need for salvation, or anything like that. I used to be part of a church like that. It was a pretty short stay after I found out what it was all about. You had sermon after sermon after sermon of a lot of pseudo-Christian pop psychology, and we never got down to what the Bible was really saying. And there seems to be the sentiment in the background that if we do this, if we do church this way, sooner or later they will like us, and then they'll like Jesus too, and then they'll become Christians. Some people will even use Paul as an example ...of this kind of evangelism. There's a story later on in Acts 17. Steve will be preaching on it in a couple of weeks. Paul is in the city of Athens. It's an extremely pagan city... ...where most people are not Jewish... ...and do not accept or even know... ...the Old Testament Bible. And he goes to the Areopagus... ...which is where often pagan philosophers... ...and religious teachers would speak and teach. And a lot of people point to Acts 17... uh, uh, in this story later on in the chapter, they, they say that Paul, he, when he's preaching to these people in Athens who don't accept the authority of the Bible, he doesn't go to the Old Testament like he did in the synagogues. He doesn't preach the Bible. But they say what he does is is he quotes from a Greek pagan religious song and He quotes from one of the famous Greek poets, and he evangelizes with secular writers. That is true. If you read that story later on in Acts 17, Paul does quote some things from the secular culture. He quotes a song, and he quotes a poet. Well, that's all true that Paul finds a way to wisely use something in pop Greek culture to back up his message. It is not true that Paul sidesteps preaching the Bible to people who don't believe in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the whole reason why Paul is in the Areopagus in the first place is because he, he was first preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And people wanted to hear more about it. He wasn't putting off preaching the gospel. He began his teachings with the gospel. And in fact, ends his teachings with, in Athens with the gospel, if you read that story. So even his ministry in pagan Athens was totally word-centered. You are never going to encounter an unbeliever who really believes the Bible anyway. They're an unbeliever. (laughs) You, You may have unbelievers who give some sort of mental assent to the authority of the Bible, but no one outside of Christ really believes it deep down inside. If they did, they'd be Christians. So don't be afraid to preach the Bible to unbelievers. Because the Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is powerful. I think that we need to come to grips with the fact that if we do not incorporate the truth of Scripture into our life and into our ministry into our dealings with unbelievers, if we don't have a word-centered approach with them, then they will not be saved by anything else you do. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, I don't need to preach the Bible to them. I'm just going to make friends with lost people, and I'm just going to live out the gospel. I'm just going to let my life be a testimony for Jesus Christ. And sometimes they will quote St. Francis of Assisi, who who said a very famous quote. You probably have heard of it. I actually read recently that there's some dispute over whether St. Francis actually said this or not. But regardless, it's attributed to him. And the quote is, Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Now, when I heard that for the first time, I was like, whoa. Man, that's deep. I mean, that sounds really good. That sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? Now, I need to tell you, though, my friends... Words are necessary. Words are necessary. The Bible's message of salvation absolutely must be preached. The Bible goes as far as to say that no one will be saved apart from the preaching of the gospel. The Bible says in Romans 10, this is Paul, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, if you read those verses carefully in Romans 10, you'll find in there the answer to one of the most common questions that I hear. What happens to people who never hear the gospel? And I think the answer is clear based on Romans 10. They're lost. They need to hear the gospel Words are necessary. If you build relationships with lost people and all you do is live a good Christian life around them and you never get around to sharing the gospel with them, all they're going to do is think that you're a really nice guy or a really nice gal. And then thinking that you are a nice gal, guy or a nice gal is not what they must believe to be saved. They must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. What's more, them believing that you are a nice guy or a nice gal gives who the glory? It gives you the glory. Do not deny the glory that is due God by letting people think that there is something great about you as opposed to them thinking that there is something great about God who saved you and and changed a wretch like you and like me. And then you tell them why you're different. And tell them why you live the way you do. And you tell them about Jesus. And you tell them about what he did for you. And what he can do for them. You preach the gospel to them. Let your life and your ministry be word-centered and Bible-saturated. And maybe one day you will be accused of turning the world upside down. I'm almost done. My challenge to everybody in this room... Myself included, guys. Myself included. I'm not on the the, the ivory tower pinnacle looking down at you guys and shaking my finger and saying, y'all need to get it right, and I've got it all together. Now, my challenge to all of us, myself included, are are to challenge us and to examine ourselves in these two areas. Number one, are we boldly witnessing for Christ? And number two, are we a word-centered, Bible-centered people? Our motto at Harbin's Church is that we are a place where the generations converge, to enjoy God, and to change the world. We will never, never fulfill that ambition if we drop the ball in those two areas. If we are not boldly witnessing for Christ, and if we are not a Bible-centered, Word-centered people. You know, there are opportunities all around us to be a witness for Christ. Opportunities everywhere. I dare say that everybody in this room can think of people in their lives, friends, families, co-workers, whomever, You can think of people right now that are lost and they need a preacher sharing the gospel and the way of salvation with them. And if you don't know lost people, go to downtown Athens with Peter as he meets college students and shares Christ with lost people there on the college campuses. Plenty of lost people there. You don't need to go overseas to find lost people. You don't have to travel the world to start turning it upside down. Now, I'm all for foreign missions. We need more missionaries going overseas to preach the gospel. I pray that God will raise somebody up in this room to go overseas full time and preach the gospel. But you don't have to go to Africa to find lost people. In fact, there are regions in Africa... where where the gospel is exploding and there are more saved people per capita in some regions in Africa than on the campus of UGA. There are opportunities all around us. Opportunities coming up. we got our Christmas outreach that's coming up. I'll tell you more about that in a minute in our closing announcements. But it's time for increased boldness. It is time for our talk and our conversations with lost people to be word-centered. Yes, it's, it's fine to talk football with your lost friends, but sooner or later we have got to get around to the gospel. It's got to happen. The NFL will not turn anyone's world upside down. Only the message of Christ crucified can do that. And if we lack boldness and if we're not word-centered, then all of your lost friends will think you're a nice guy, and that will not help them when they stand before God in judgment. Only belief in Jesus Christ will save them, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Be bold, preach the word, change the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would cut through my weak, sinful, feeble efforts to give anything worthwhile to these people here. I pray that you would speak directly. That you would take the words, the Bible verses, the scriptures that have been read this morning. And that you would do your work with that word in my heart and in the hearts of my friends here. God, all of us, to one degree or another, struggle with boldness in sharing the faith as a real and present problem. And I pray that you would help us all in that. Increase our boldness. Increase our faith. Give us such a view of eternity and what's to come that any opposition that we might face would pale in comparison to the wonders and the glories and the awesome things that you have for us in the next age. God, help us to to burn in our minds the reality of hell and judgment, Lord. That it is real. And that without the gospel message, people are going to end up there forever. God, give us compassion for our lost friends and for our neighbors. God, stir up within us a holy zeal and desire to give you glory by telling the world what you're doing in our life, what you've done for us, what you can do for them. At the end of the day, it is all about you, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.